This episode is brought to you by Kensington's newest title from Lori Wilde, Priscilla Oliveras, and Sarah Skilton, Summer in the City. Witty, fun, and totally on trend, Summer in the City is the perfect rom-com anthology written by three authors known for their sense of humor, spicy romance, and fresh approach to falling in love. The three connected novellas in this anthology share the all-too-relatable theme of what happens when highly anticipated plans suddenly get thrown out the window thanks to unforeseen circumstances. For these three friends stuck in an unexpected citywide blackout, cancel plans to open the way for unexpected romance. You can find Summer in the City by Lori Wilde, Priscilla Oliveras, and Sarah Skilton wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we talking about this week, Harmony? We are talking about, well, we were supposed to talk about Salvage the Bones, but then I decided that instead we should do a portable poetry episode on an author we haven't covered yet, who I've been dying to cover. Her name is Sappho, and we are looking at the poem. It's kind of untitled, so I've heard it referred to by its first line, which is Deathless Aphrodite of the Spangled Mind. Or I've heard it referred to as Sappho's hymn to Aphrodite. Fun fact about this poem, it is the only complete poem that we have of Sappho. So that's cool. I mean, it's cool, but also I wish we had more of her completed works. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Sappho was a poet or lyricist, maybe, because most of her songs we think were probably sung out loud and probably in a public setting, who we date around the time of 630 to 570 BCE. She was Grecian and she was from the island Lesbo, (laughs) which we'll get into in a little bit. But a lot of her work we only know about because it's been written down by other Greek or Roman writers. We know that Plato was a huge fan of hers. I think that he referred to her as like the 10th muse or something like that. Yeah, and she was also called the other Homer, essentially, often. She was up there in stature. That makes sense. Her work is pretty explicitly gay. And so because of that, we think that a lot of her work was destroyed during the medieval period because it offended so many people's sensibilities. So we have some of her work written down from other people. And then we have some stuff that we found on clay pots. And then almost kind of recently, we've started finding actual papyrus scrolls. And I think one of the only reasons that we have this poem is because that we're about to read on air is because it's a poem about conquest. (laughs) And so her fellow countrymen thought that was funny, I guess, and liked the idea of conquest and so preserved it nicely for us. (laughs) 
Uh, the Greeks were conquerors. I mean, that is that is what they did. <laughs> yeah, but she's an interesting lady that we know very little about as a human. Yeah, yeah, which is weird. I, I mean, and it's funny too because they found some of these scrolls, these papyrus scrolls, in some weird places. I think they found some of them in a sarcophagus, just like chilling. There's a lot of speculation about her sexuality because it, I, I think there's a lot of speculation about whether she was a lesbian as we would define it today. Or if she was bisexual, because she's also written some really explicit poetry about Eros, who's a a male god or a male presenting god. I think that uh, in a lot of LGBTQIA culture today, she's kind of just the OG lesbian. And that's what that's what a lot of people think of her as. Yeah. So if you've been on TikTok lately, you might have noticed the sapphic trends that's trending right now on TikTok and on Instagram. Yeah. In terms of aesthetic, I'm here for it because it's super gay, usually kind of old timey. (laughs) The word sapphic is something that it's an old timey word that means woman lovers, essentially. And that derives from Sappho. Part of what Maggie's alluding to with the speculation around her sexuality. So apparently a lot of the translations that we have of her because it's in Greek and because because so much of our understanding of Grecian culture was destroyed during the medieval period. There are a lot of, and because there was such an effort to whitewash Sappho's work because it's so gay, essentially, and even when it's not gay, it's very sexual. There's a lot out there that suggests that Sappho might have been a whore. (laughs) And so when we, inexplicitly a whore sleeping with men, the word lesbian in Grecian culture Some people think, according to a New Yorker article called Girl Interrupted by Daniel Mendelssohn, written in 2015, apparently the word lesbian in Grecian culture meant something about blowjobs. Here, let me see the exact thing that we thought it meant. While you're searching for that, I think it's also interesting. Our the translator for this poem, Elizabeth, or the or for the version I read was by Elizabeth Van Devere, copyrighted in 1997, and she also mentioned a little bit about this sexuality speculation. And she said, and I and I'm quoting here: In the Greek, the sex of Sappho's beloved is indicated by only one word: the feminine participle etholoisia, wishing slash wanting slash willing. Unfortunately, the text may be corrupt at this point, and the reading is not absolutely certain, although it is general accepted. Yeah, so we're not entirely sure, but from reading this article that was published in 2015, and to be fair, some of the scholarship might have changed since 2015, but I will say looking at the Sappho Wikipedia page, and I think Wikipedia is tends to be a pretty good pulse on general knowledge of a subject. The latest thing I see cited there is from 2016, and that's a book. So I think that this scholarship probably still holds up today. But according to the 2015 article, having read it, it seems, and you guys can go ahead and read it to yourself, it seems like a lot of the efforts to make it less gay was probably a whitewashing. And I think that Maggie was right to speculate that some of this might just be bisexuality because she did also refer to Ben. And there also is evidence to suggest that she may have been married. To go back to the lesbian point, so... Lesbian meant to act like someone from Lesbo, and that meant performing fellatio, or lesbos, sorry. So there's a lo- there's multiple things in here that suggest that she was a slut. There was a encyclopedia thing about her at one point in time, and it was translated talking about her family and her, her husband from Kirkhylus. So this is this is one of the things we're like, we're unsure what this means. She has a husband named Kirkhylus, but we're, we don't actually know if that's true because Kirkhylus looks a lot like Kirkos, which is Greek slang for penis. 
And Andros is close to the word for man. And so the encyclopedia, this is a quote from the New Yorker article, the encyclopedia turns out to have been unwittingly recycling a tired old joke about oversexed Sappho, who was married to Dick of Man. That's interesting, actually, because I was reading a, a less comprehensive article, but they stated that as like a fact she was married and they had this daughter named Cleus. But even... I mean, there's there's so much speculation about her life. The poet Ovid suggested that she committed suicide after a sailor broke her heart. While every other scholar is like, no, like she died an old woman way later than that. Yeah. So that's talked about in the New Yorker article, too. And it's a popular myth. I don't remember what their explanation was. But yeah, that was also what the New Yorker article said. That that didn't actually happen and had something more to do with some sort of literary symbolism. Sappho's a weird person. Before we get into the poem, I have this wonderful book here. It's called Literary Witches, A Celebration of Magical Woman Writers. It is by, I'm going to mispronounce this name, so I am sorry, person whose name I'm about to mispronounce, Heja Kitasakia. Again, sorry for the brutal murder, illustrated by Katie Horan, or Horan. Again, I don't know how to pronounce that. And I'm just going to read a paragraph because what they do is they take these famous writers and write beautiful little odes to them. Sappho is a pair of wings, purling between pigeon blue, moody emerald, and golden white, smoldering in a hidden cave. The wings disappear from time to time, reappearing in young girls' closets. How seriously each girl puts these wings on the mirror, readying herself for the pain and pleasure of love. That's very beautiful. I feel like that also really captures this 21st century obsession with Sappho and what she means to a whole generation of girls and young women. Yeah, I so I didn't know about Sappho until kind of recently. And again, it was because I discovered the word sapphic and then had to look it up and also had this book. And so I was like, oh, okay. She's our role model of the original lesbian or bisexual. She's our she's our role model for a woman who is has a woman lover, essentially. But I think that it's interesting, too, because the New Yorker article was talking about scholarship and women thinking that they were the only only lesbian woman until they read Sappho. And then they were like, oh, this is another person. And I think for me, I feel like she's having a very modern moment, right? Because... It coincides with my discovery of her, but she's been around for forever and people have had that (laughs) that affinity for her for forever. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Despite Pope Greg, you know, doing his best in 1073 to just destroy all her works, she survives. She she plows on through the centuries as one of the ancients that is, I feel like, really prescient in, in the modern times. And I feel like, too... And this is, I think, true of a lot of ancient Greek, especially translations, is that a lot of ancient Greek translations are translated into very modern and accessible English, which I actually really like because I feel like it makes it really easy for people to connect to ancient past. I remember reading... Medea, for example, for the first time, I think in 10th grade and being like, oh, I get what's happening. It felt like such a far cry for Shakespeare, for example, to just be able to open up something and know it was written so long ago and be like, hey, I understand what's happening here. This is fucking crazy. But like, I get what's going on. And it feels like there's real prescient human emotions. And I feel like really good translators of Sappho to really just get at that feeling. I wonder if it's easier because she is known for being kind of a straightforward writer. I think in the New Yorker article, the word that they use is Brock. She's not Baroque. 
essentially. So she's not overly, she doesn't try to complicate her words, even though she's so beautiful in her writing. And it's funny too, because what we know about her is that she's a lesbian. Like that's her her thing. But in ancient Greece, what we think was known about her is that she was one of the greatest poets. And she's actually known for creating a type of poetry, like a type of poetry form called the sapphic meter. So that's kind of cool. But she was, I think that in the New Yorker article, it said that they had Homer as the poet. He was the poet of the nation. And then Sappho was referred to as the poetess. But she was held up there with Homer. And a lot of that we know is true because other scholars, other Greek scholars have written about her and been like, she was respected even though she was a woman. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which I think too is really interesting today about this idea of translation as well. Because even though that's true, our knowledge of ancient language is so wild sometimes and working from texts that have been physically... When that translator was talking about a corrupted text, she meant that physically the artifact is disintegrating and really, really difficult to read. Even with this relatively straightforward style, there's back and forth about word choice and what was meant here. And I think that too is really interesting about the idea that she was saying like, she, you know, to talk about her beloved is one of the few things that people actually agree upon, even if it isn't 100% certain and is kind of become accepted practice because the rest of it is so back and forth and there's multiple ways you can interpret things. And is this letter actually this letter or is it this letter? Because if it is, it has a different meaning. And like, how does that change our reading of the poem? So yeah, I don't know. I just find that really interesting when you're dealing with genuinely ancient works. Yeah, I agree. A quick thing before we go ahead and read the poem too. Another interesting thing that kind of plays into our speculation around her sexuality is that I guess for a long time the scholarship thought that this was or we saw we saw Sappho's writing as a personal sort of poem thing referring to a personal human and she's writing about it for these women that she loves but because we know that she was writing hymns and that these were things that were maybe performed out loud and maybe performed by multiple people there's some scholarship that suggests that all of her poems are really about training women for marriage or are about I obviously I'm not a classicist I don't know anything I'm just telling you my interpretation of the article so please don't take my word for it go ahead and read it we'll link it in so yeah they're talking about either training women for marriage or just raising the general sexual energy of people (laughs) whatever sexual morale I guess I didn't, I didn't think that was a problem in ancient Greece, but okay. <laughs> I guess it could be like a general well-being thing. That's how I interpreted it. It does feel interesting though, because it feels weird to take a historical figure who is so well known today for being queer and pulling that back a little bit. But I do think it's also useful to understand how and why certain cultural truths have came to be and do your own research on them too. Because I don't know, I don't think I've ever seen anyone suggest so strongly that Sappho was straight. No one in the modern era, unless they're really drinking that anti, anti-gay anti water. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear. But I do think it is interesting, especially I think as we think about like bisexual erasure in 2021 and things like that, how she's the OG lesbian. But in reality, maybe it was a little bit more complicated and nuanced than that. And that doesn't lower her status as a queer icon by any means. But it does complicate the narrative that we have of her in popular culture in a way that I think is interesting. Yeah. I agree. I think that too, I mean, so some people have suggested that there were two Sappho's. There was Sappho the whore, and then there was maybe Sappho the poet. 
right? But that to me does kind of, again, I'm not a scholar, so don't take my word for it, but it does feel kind of like serious by erasure. A lot of the explanation about her sexuality and not understanding it because a lot of it comes from the fact that there are sex jokes about her with men just kind of feels like oh you just didn't understand what bisexuality was (laughs) oh she can like women and men (laughs) also i think probably shows prejudice against people who actually do sex work and things like that and being like well you can't you can't use this word that's like associated with something that we don't like anymore with one of the greatest poets, which you can't tell from my tone, extreme mocking sarcasm there. Yeah, there's just a lot to unpick, I think, about historic figures, especially really famous historic figures, and how we think of them in our general cultural context today, and whether that's actually accurate, and why those things have been held to be true. Yeah, I agree. Are we ready to finally read this poem, Maggie? Sure, let's do it. Iridescent throned Aphrodite, deathless child of Zeus, wile weaver. I now implore you, don't, I beg you, lady, with pains and torments, crush down my spirit. But before, if ever you've heard my pleadings, then return, as once when you left your father's golden house, you yoked to your shining car, your wing-whirring sparrows. Skimming down the paths of the sky's bright ether, on they brought you over the earth's black bosom, swiftly. Then you stood with a sudden brilliance, goddess before me deathless face alight with your smile. You asked me what I suffered. Who was my cause of anguish? What would ease the pain of my frantic mind, and why I had called you? To my side. And whom should persuasion summon here to soothe the sting of your passion this time? Who is abusing you now, Sappho? Who is treating you cruelly? Now she runs away, but she'll soon pursue you. Gifts she now rejects, Soon enough, she'll give them. Now she doesn't love you, but soon her heart will burn, though unwilling. Come to me once more and abate my torment. Take the bitter care from my mind and give me all I long for, lady. In all my battles, fight as my comrade. All right, Miss Mags, what is your what what are your impressions of this poem? I feel like it's really just like, it's it's two things at once, right? Because at first it it is very much a hymn to Aphrodite. She's sitting here and appealing to this goddess and saying, "Help me, help me, help me. My heart is breaking essentially. This chick is playing hard to get." <laughs> but then also it's like in some ways, almost a mocking of the speaker's self and saying, this happens often. Who is tormenting, whom is tormenting you now? She's, she's in this cycle with these, with these women who, who are sort of stringing her along almost, but you know, they're going to circle back because they always do. I think that the use of the word soon her heart will burn though unwilling seems interesting to me though, because that to me is this social commentary almost about what, what's right and wrong and propriety, but then also is it Aphrodite? who's making this happen that's kind of weird but also akin to what I know about Greek mythology and those are my half-baked thoughts on this poem I understand so part of the reason I chose this poem and it works out well because this is the full this is the only full poem we have of Sappho is because I'm having an Aphrodite moment and kind of questioning who Aphrodite was and what she she means and and in culture in general. But as Maggie pointed out, the Greeks did attribute any sort of passion or any sort of love to Aphrodite, and it often wasn't really super caring about consent. And this poem is often interpreted 
as Maggie was also saying, is a plea to Aphrodite to help her woo a lady. But the, the part that I really like and part of the reason why I like this translation is the very last line that says, fight as my comrade. Because you're right that she does seem like she's kind of making fun of herself. But then the fight as my comrade part to me, and because it's a, a hymn to Aphrodite specifically, it, it places love as such a central point which is something I guess we see, and I'm not a Sappho scholar, so forgive me, but that's something we see a lot in her poems is that she prioritizes love a lot. And so like the idea of her and Aphrodite hand in hand fighting for this thing, that just feels meaningful somehow. (laughs) No, I think it does. I think sometimes when you go this far back, it's hard not to place poetry in relation to other sentiments that we've seen throughout the years. But this idea of love as a battlefield, I mean, there's 2004 songs that are now stuck in my head. But also you've got this idea of all's fair in love and war. This idea of love is something to be worth fighting for. It's worth centralizing in your life. It's worth going into battle for. I think that sometimes in this contemporary moment, we take that for granted almost because it's a cliche now. But in this time, it's like, no, this is this is important. This is central. This is I call on a goddess to make this happen for myself. And yeah, there's consent issues, but I think that it really places, it re-emphasizes the power that love can have in one's life, especially when one is pursuing, you know, an object of love that maybe is less socially acceptable and makes you feel like yourself as a person. I agree. I think too, I wish I knew more about classicists' take on Aphrodite. I think it's interesting to, though, to go back to the idea of comradeship. When we look at Greek mythology, I think that we see a lot of the times the gods getting really angry whenever you put yourself... In their paths. In their paths, but also, like, if you equal yourself to them, right? They're super... Especially Aphrodite, which is part of the reason why... I didn't have as much interest in her before now. She's a really petty goddess. So the idea that Sappho is placing herself at the same at the same level as Aphrodite, not in terms of beauty, but in terms as lo- of like love love isn't greater than me. I don't know, feels very powerful to me because she's taking ownership of it. I also wonder too how except I wish I had looked this up beforehand, but I wonder too how acceptable lesbian relationships were in ancient Greece. Because we know that men slept together, but I suspect that there was probably more taboos for women. But it also probably depended a lot if you whether you were in a female-oriented space or not. Whether you were in a temple that only had women or whether you were in a whorehouse for some reason, that then it was probably more acceptable because there were no men there to tell you no chilling on the isle of lesbos <laughs> sorry that was a bad joke I'll, I'll see myself out now no but that is a really good question i shouldn't i don't know either so i shouldn't make assumptions about social acceptance and things like that i i'm willing to bet you're right and that it was less socially acceptable for women to be involved in other women just because that tend with other women just because that tends to be how history does things uh men can do things and when women do them they don't but i do think that it I agree with you. There is something really interesting happening there, especially because the beginning of the poem does start with flattering words to Aphrodite. She, When she's summoning her, you know, she arrives and she's like, sudden brilliance, 
goddess before me and it feels like reverence it feels like a subservient relationship to to a certain extent but then you're right at the end they're comrades they have the same goal and they're out to achieve it together and there is something really powerful about that aphrodite is also like at her beck and call in this poem right because she she knows this has happened before She's made her fall in love with people before, or she's made other people return her love and favor, which is really interesting to me, too, from a witchcraft standpoint, right? Because that's how we often treat our deities today. No matter how you think of deity, the whole point is that like they're going to answer your prayers or your witches or your magic. And I don't think, I don't know, because again, not a classicist. I don't think that that was typically how ancient Grecian gods were thought of. I think that it was a little bit more like, they're the gods and they're going to do whatever the fuck they want. And we'll try to appeal to their favor. (laughs) Yeah, it's super true, though, especially in the context of this poem, because Aphrodite knows the speaker well. That whole conversation they have, it's not even just at beck and call, but there's this fond teasing. Deathless fate alight with your smile. You ask me what I suffered. Who was the cause of my anguish? You can tell that this is a conversation they've had before, that they're continuing to have. And there's something playful and loving about that interaction as much as Aphrodite is still positioned as also being the person who has the answers here she knows already but she's gonna ask anyways they've been in these footsteps before and that to me is like a really i think joyful interpretation of this relationship that you're right at the very least in pop culture because that's where most of my grief myth references come from we don't typically think about or or see that as being that the nature of that relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess too, let's look at what Aphrodite perhaps could be. I mean, she's the personification of love, but I'm wondering if we can dig any deeper with that in some of her descriptions. Do you think we can? I think that the idea of phrasing it as a deathless child of Zeus, while weaver, to me felt... I think deeper than that. She's called deathless twice in this poem, which I think is interesting. And I mean, of course, it's a reference to the fact that she's an immoral being, but I think that there might be some, it's twice. Like it really sticks out to me, this idea of Aphrodite as this eternal creature. And I think typically too, when we think of that, we think of her as somebody who potentially doesn't feel very deeply. She is oftentimes styled as being kind of petty and cruel because of that. But I think Sappho here almost positions it as she's deathless, so she's seen this happen a million times and yet still sees the importance of love and what's happening and she still sees the speaker suffering even though she the speaker herself has been in this position before Aphrodite still comes and also this idea of a wile weaver that feels very explicitly sexual it's all about feminine wiles that seduce others and Aphrodite is like the the fate weaver of that and she's pulling these strings in a way that I think feels more personal I think than she's often played out to be at least in pop culture yeah Yeah, that makes sense. Everyone has some sort of access to Aphrodite in this poem. It's depicted as, or at least our speaker does, which is interesting because I don't know, is she an Aphrodite priestess? I, I haven't seen anything about that for Sappho, at least, but maybe the speaker is separate than Sappho. I don't know. Even if you are an Aphrodite priestess, are you calling upon Aphrodite to help you woo other people? Are you calling upon her to help you woo other women? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Do you have anything else within the text that you think is super interesting? No. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. All right. Well, let's 
see how do we feel about this poem is it feminist I mean, there's there's like a major consent issue at the end, which makes me feel a little weird about say, about saying yes. But like at the same time, I think the core of this poem is about loving who you want to love in the way that you want to love them. And I feel like that message is inherently feminist. So like, yes, with like a star of the fact that like consent is important and Greek mythology is not concerned with it. Yeah. Greek mythology just does not care about consent. Yeah, I agree. I think that the idea of like love being powerful and then also you having this sort of agency over love is really important and inherently feminist too, especially when we place it in the context of the fact that like people are still fighting to to love whoever they want. And that is a feminist issue. (laughs) And I think also like you were saying, the way that the speaker is able to position herself as being equal to Aphrodite makes it feel more feminist to me. Like it feels like there's power being taken here, even as she's negotiating with this like God who you would think would be ultimately all powerful. Yeah, and who is ultimately all-powerful, but, like, who is still willing to let themselves be pulled by, like, your whims? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. But yes, consent is is important, and just, like, as a disclaimer, even if you're in a non-traditional relationship, that does not mean that you don't have to follow the, uh, the rules of consent. <laughs> in case anyone's unclear. What are you reading right now, Maggie? I'm reading A Lapse Away by Darcy Little Badger. What are you reading? I am reading, I was reading My Brain on Love for my YA class. And that is all I'm comfortable sharing right now because I've had to put a lot of books on hiatus for a hot second. Fair enough, fair enough. Homework, what, do, what did we do this week that, that was good? Hmm. Hmm. You go first and I'll think. I feel like the answer was akin to nothing this week. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm I'm like racking my brains. I did. I think that this might be actually the first time that we're explicitly addressing this on the podcast, which is weird. But uh, I did. I was able to make a small donation to Free Palestine this week and also was doing a lot of research about settler colonialism and how we can stop that from happening. Because yeah, what's happening in Palestine is really fucking messed up right now. So I mean, it's it's been messed up for years. But it's good that like the dialogue is changing. <laughs> I like that like the major media streams that I've seen have been painting it in a somewhat more nuanced light. Because for a long time, it was just Hamas is terrorists. And uh Israel is the state, and therefore we have to respect it. And actually, apparently there are all these laws. I think in New York State there's a law. Let me try and find it for people. So my partner works for government, and he made me aware of this. But there are some laws on the books. And in New York State, I believe there is one. Yeah, so uh, New York... There was a law passed uh, to prevent New York State from supporting boycotts used to harm Israel and other U.S. allies. So essentially, like, certain colleges and stuff in New York State can't use, and I'm sure other states have similar laws to this, they can't, like, say anything that could be interpreted as um, being against the state of Israel because, or, or, like, they lose some of their, their contract money. With the with the state governments. And I believe that there are federal contracts like that as well. I'll try to link some literature. But that could be some good homework for everyone to just like brush up on. 
So if you're mad at your institution for not like making a statement about free Palestine, it might be because of that. <laughs> and it's really fucked up. And legal friends, please, uh, please look into that and try and change that for us. Or tell us what we can do to change it. Yeah, because this is decades of just like bullshit that just now in 2021 is is being like having having its narrative reframed in a slightly more equitable light it's ridiculous yeah yeah so i'm gonna share like something kind of personal i guess that i did that i think will ultimately help make the world a better place why are you laughing i'm listening well i don't know because i think it's silly though it's like it's very personal uh like person yeah so it feels kind of selfish, but I discovered recently that I like I, I've been having some issues with it with like gender roles and relationships. Not that I'm being forced into one, but like about how other people perceive me and like about what gender roles they perceive that I should be taking on. And I had a realization that like I was significantly traumatized by sexism growing up <laughs> and the sexism my young single mother faced. And the um the abuse she faced, and uh, therefore like it's not just a like unequal power dynamics are something that I just can't do, or, or like power dynamics that are more traditional are not like they're they are actually triggering to me, and so uh, I just wanted to share that because I think that finding that language is important, and maybe that's true for you as well, right? So maybe you do feel maybe you're in a position where you feel like you're being the selfish party or everyone in your life is calling you like a radical feminist and it's like okay but I can't actually do this thing because I know that it is directly harmful to me even if I love my partner and like I want to do this thing for them like I can't because like it will put me in a mentally bad place and that's okay that is that's good sharing I don't know why you were saying that's selfish it's good to it's good to share what you learn about yourself and allow it to help others yeah all right, what are we doing next week? We have an interview with an author named uh, Elle Bordeski next week, and she is sharing her book, Forget Russia, with us. And so we are going to be talking about primarily uh, like what it was like for Jewish people during the Soviet Union and like a little bit before the Soviet Union. It is an intergenerational drama. All right, that's all, folks. We'll see you next week. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.